This evening, our exhortation is to be brought to us by Brother Aaron Thomas, and his subject will be, I am the resurrection and the life. So let's now turn our attention to Brother Aaron. Good evening. If we could have everybody turn to the 11th chapter of John, the Gospel of John. In the 11th chapter of John, we have the account of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Now within this chapter, we have the very enlightening and moving discourse between Jesus and Martha. Starting at the 23rd verse. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, shall never die. Believest thou this? Now our subject this evening is the emphatic statement by Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. Now during this brief time here this evening, we cannot give a complete consideration of all aspects of where this statement can lead us. Nor can we take a look at all applicable scriptures. But what we wish to briefly consider is how this statement relates to the gospel message. And what exactly are the ramifications of this declaration as it relates to what the scriptures reveal regarding the hope of resurrection, the bestowal of eternal life, and Christ's relationship to those things. Now, to get a proper understanding of Christ's statement, we need to first review a couple of pivotal developments from early on in the biblical record. If we could go to the 13th chapter of Genesis. And in our consideration, we're going to... There'll be some overlap and some, some verses that have been, been called on before, as hopefully would be the case with a consideration such as this. For, for these subjects, these I Am statements both in and of themselves speak very glorious truths, but their overlapping, their overlapping nature cannot be forgotten. But in the 13th chapter of Genesis, and I need to get there myself, starting in the 14th verse, here we have a most remarkable promise given by God to Abraham. Now this is a passage that is widely ignored by professing Christianity and can be taken for granted among Christadelphians for the impact it has on all levels of Bible truth. Now God said to Abraham, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land that thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever." Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Now what does this have to do with resurrection? And the comment or the answer to that is it has everything. It has everything 
to do with the hope of resurrection and the bestowal of life eternal. It is especially remarkable in light of what has taken place some 2,000 years previous to when this covenant was made. The promise given to Abraham and his seed was to be how long? How long was it supposed to be? Forever. But we understand that the problem of death stands in the way of such a fulfillment. 2,000 years, or roughly 2,000 years earlier than this promise made to Abraham, Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, placing themselves and the human race under condemnation to death. Romans 5.12, let's take a look at that. Commonly quoted scriptural passage in our meetings and in our gatherings in our Bible schools. Romans 5.12, it states, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin? And so death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned. As the biblical record tells us, Abraham himself died in faith, not having received the promises. Stephen confirms in Acts chapter 7, And he, or God, gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession. Now we know that the only way that God can fulfill his promise to Abraham to give him an eternal possession of the land is to resurrect him from the dead. That such a conclusion was to be drawn was further confirmed by God when speaking to Moses through the burning bush. If we could turn to the third chapter of Exodus. Third chapter of Exodus, starting in the 14th verse. It is in this third chapter that God gives His memorial name of Ayah, Asher Ayah, or I will be who I will be. Of course, in our authorized version, it says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And He said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And we understand through other studies that this should be, I will be. It says, Thus shalt thou say unto all the children of Israel, The Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Turning over to Luke chapter 20 to connect this, the thoughts on why we've looked this up. Luke chapter 20. And from the very beginning, Brother Scott's comments last night to start us off, we understand in these I am statements the principle, the overriding principle of God manifestation. Luke chapter 20, verses 37 and 38. Christ, when Jesus disputed with the Sadducees, he did not, the, the, the Sadducees we know denied the resurrection itself. Christ used this verse, what we've looked up, to prove the reality of the resurrection. He used this verse that we found back in Exodus to prove the reality of the resurrection. He says this, Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
For He is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto Him. Now these three patriarchs are mentioned as the personal parties of the covenant. The personal parties of the covenant. And direct beneficiaries of the promise of resurrection. Now, how could these men be spoken of as alive when they were dead? Of course, we know that the apostate religions or orthodoxy would point to this as proof that, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are living very, very well in the, in the, in the kingdom in heaven. Uh, but we know that this is not the case at all. If we turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 17, just as a, as, as a, a sidebar to, to what we're talking about. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. And we know it's in this verse, the latter portion of the verse, that we are told uh, that it is God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God was speaking to a future time when they would be in all surety made alive once again. So the definiteness, the surety of the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would live again, that they would rise from the dead, is beyond dispute. God speaks of those things as if they have already occurred. That is how certain and how sure those promises that were made are. Now to David was also given a covenant. According to the 7th chapter of 2 Samuel, which, is, which was referred to this morning, we know that David was promised a seed that would descend from him, whose kingdom and throne would be established forever. A seed who would not only be a descendant of David, but also would also be the Son of God. David exclaims in joy in the 19th verse of this 7th chapter of Samuel, 2 Samuel. David exclaims in joy, Is this the manner of man? Or what is better rendered, is this the manner of the man? Is this the manner of the man? This being in relation to the promised Messiah. That promised seed, the promised seed that is found promised to Eve, that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that David is a man of faith, would be all too aware of this promised seed and the amazement to the fact that he would be of relation to this long-promised individual. Is this the manner of the man? And not only was such a promise given, but David was given a pledge that this promised kingdom would be reestablished before thee, or in other words, in David's presence. The hope of resurrection was clearly laid out for David as well. But without a way out of death provided, these promises made to Abraham and David, also referred to in the Scriptures as the everlasting covenant, cannot come into full force. Soon after Adam and Eve introduced sin and death into the world, a way out of death was alluded to through a promised seed in Genesis 3.15 who, though bearing the sin-flesh nature, and as has already been referenced, I believe, this morning, would himself overcome sin and destroy sin and death, the bruising of the serpent's head, through death, himself being bruised in the heel. So the destruction of death through death. Now the statement, coming back full circle, I am the resurrection and the life. Back in John chapter 11. Now with these things in mind, we come back to the words of Christ. 
And our subject for this evening, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, as we are considering this weekend, this is one of the many I am statements found in the Scriptures, most specifically here in the Gospel of John. In the, in the Bible, we see this short phrase in connection with this future tense form, I will be. I will be. As it is found in the Yahweh name. To declare the manifestation of God's characteristics as well as His purpose for this earth and mankind. First, first being manifest in a single individual or Savior, and then in a whole host of Elohim or Mighty Ones. First, in a single individual or a Savior, and then in a whole host of Elohim or Mighty Ones. As the perfect manifestation of the Father, and as the vehicle provided to fill the earth with the Father's glory, Christ declared of Himself, and as already has been discussed, I am the bread of life, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. That God may fill the earth with His glory, He has chosen to do so by the development of a people to reflect His character in both moral and physical perfection. That this may be accomplished, God is redeeming out of the condemned and Adamic race a people to glorify His name in such a manner. But the problem of sin and death acts as a barrier to this objective. And as man is not capable of saving himself, Yahweh Himself has provided the means by which salvation from the fallen condition might be achieved. As we read in 2 Corinthians, and if we could turn there please, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Second Corinthians chapter five verses eighteen and nineteen. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, here in John 11, we have two I am statements combined in one. First, we have I am the resurrection. Now, the word resurrection the word resurrection is from the Greek anastasis, which indicates a standing again or the actual coming out of the grave. And, and we mean that as, as one, as standing again, uh, or the coming out of the grave itself. The second part of this is Christ's affirmation, I am the life. The word life is directly translated from the Greek word zoe. And as it is used here, it is clear that Christ is speaking of two distinct but closely related steps. First is that of resurrection, or a standing again, a resuscitation. And by context, context, here in John 11 is speaking of the resurrection at the last day, looked for through faith by Martha. It is in reference to a coming out of the grave in a mortal, a mortal condition awaiting the decision of eternal life or death at the judgment. And as Brother Thomas states in Eureka, and he has a very succinct comment, he says, The passing through the grave cleanses no one. Passing through the grave cleanses no one. They who emerge thence come forth 
with the same nature they carried into it. And therefore, their coming forth is resurrection. The second part of Christ's statement, I am the life, in its context here in John 11, points to the bestowal of eternal life. Now we know that not everyone that will come out of the grave will be granted eternal life as is stated by the prophet Daniel. And we know in the twelfth chapter, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What Christ emphatically states here in very simple terms is that He is the means by which, first of all, number one, the dead will be raised to judgment. Number one, the dead will be raised to judgment. And number two, the reward of eternal life will be given. Christ is the means for these two points. 1 Corinthians 15.21, which is also been referenced. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 21. Here we read that for since by man, or Adam, came death, by man, Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. And in John 3.16, and you don't necessarily have to look that up, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Christ is directly connected to resurrection and the bestowal of eternal life. Now other men such as Elijah, Elisha, Peter, Paul, these individuals also raised the dead. But they could not declare in and of themselves, they could not say, I am the resurrection. They could not make this claim. Such cases of resurrection, including that of Lazarus, when Christ raised Lazarus, such cases of resurrection, including that of Lazarus, were exceptions that were not a part of the resurrection and judgment spoken of by the prophets. Nor were they related to the bestowal of eternal life and inheritance as contained in the everlasting covenant. These incidents were independent of any law or promise that God had revealed. Such cases of resurrection were resuscitations to live out a normal lifespan to die once again and in and of themselves as isolated miracles were signs. These were signs of the power of God and provided proof of the reality of the resurrection yet to come. They were signs of the resurrection yet to come. But what qualified Christ to be able to make such a claim is found here in the 11th chapter of John. What qualified Christ for this? And we, we want to talk more tomorrow morning when we speak of the way, the truth, and the life regarding Christ's qualifications uh, a little bit more ex expansively. But to, to briefly mention it here, we tie it into our consideration of the covenants of promise. And again, what did the covenants of promise have to do with Christ being the resurrection and the life? In the covenants of promise, both to Abraham and to David, there was the promise of a singular seed. A singular seed. Not, not a seed in plural form, but of a singular seed that would be a direct beneficiary of the promises made, which, for this seed, would also necessitate a resurrection. Christ Himself is the preeminent singular seed as we read in Galatians 3.16. If we could turn that up, please. And young people, I hope you're writing, writing some of these verses down. If they're probably already marked in your Bible, and if they're not, please take note of these very fundamental cornerstone 
passages as it regards the subject of resurrection. Galatians 3.16 A memory verse. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Also, Romans chapter 15, verse 8. If we could turn that up. Here it says in Romans 15, 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Christ was to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And we know that the seed referred to in the Edenic promise the seed that would overcome and destroy the power of the serpent, the sin-flesh nature, through his own death would be none other than the Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, 14. Hebrews chapter 2, 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, or what is better rendered as the diabolus. Not only would Jesus be an inheritor of the everlasting covenant, he would be the very means by which it would be ratified through the shedding of blood. By the shedding of His blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant, He would be the vehicle by which atonement could be made for the sin-flesh nature, freedom from Adamic condemnation given, freedom from the constitution and sentence of law of sin and death as being in Adam, and deliverance into the law or constitution of the spirit of life. And as a result, and as a result a guarantee of resurrection and the hope and the hope of eternal inheritance of the promises would be made possible and we add to this first for himself and then for a clearly defined class of candidates that we will discuss more as we go through our consideration first for himself and then for a clearly defined group of candidates. The sacrifices under the law, or even before the law, as those offered by Abraham, could not accomplish this. But him, to who these sacrifices pointed forward to, we know would, or he would. It is of fundamental necessity that it be understood that the subject of covenant the everlasting covenant is directly and inseparably, and I cannot be as, any more emphatic, it is directly and inseparably related to the subject and hope of resurrection. For the hope of resurrection and of eternal life is contained, it is contained within the terms of the covenant and not outside of the covenant. David proclaimed in 2 Samuel 23.5. Let's, let's go there. 2 Samuel He says here in 23.5, I 
regarding these promises. He says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. David says, This is all my salvation. What is the this? It is the covenant. The covenant is all of David's salvation and all of his desire. Now, there can be no salvation for David or anyone else without resurrection, which is directly connected to this covenant. Now, this can be no more clearly demonstrated than what we read in Hebrews 13.20. Please turn to Hebrews 13.20. Again, another... Another memory verse that uh, we should hear often. Hebrews 13.20 Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through what? And I open this up. Just, just tell, as an audience, tell me, what is the means by which Christ was brought from the dead? Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So is the everlasting covenant important? So we ask again, what qualified Jesus as the resurrection and the life? What qualified Him for this, this grand title? We know that God has made a promise. A seed had been promised to Eve, to Abraham, and to David. A seed was promised who would be born of a woman, under the same unclean and damnably condemned nature, who by a life of perfect obedience, though tempted in all points as we are, would overcome that nature and destroy the power of sin and death through the shedding of His own blood in death or through death. A seed through who all the nations of the earth might be blessed. A seed who would possess the gate of his enemies. A seed who would sit on the throne of David. Christ's emphatic I am statement was a matter of promise. As a sacrifice fitly prepared by God, Christ fulfilled the conditions set upon him and was obedient even unto death as given an oath by God under the everlasting covenant. And though the everlasting covenant would be raised, excuse me, and through the everlasting covenant, Christ would be raised from the dead and then given the gift of immortality. Now, Brother Williams has some, some very, I think, succinct and good comments regarding this matter. Um, 200, page 292 in The World's Redemption. I, my typing is a little bit small, so I apologize if you have a hard time seeing it. But this is what he says. He says, Since it is true that the everlasting covenant could not come into full force until it had been ratified by the shedding of the blood of the everlasting covenant, and since the everlasting covenant and the law of the spirit of life and gospel are all one and the same thing, it follows that the realization of the plan of redemption expressed in these different terms, depended upon Christ's successful performance of His mission, His obedience through a life of probation, and His voluntary sacrificial death, which would ensure His resurrection by the Father. Jesus would thus become the resurrection, or anastasis, and the life, as we have found in John 11.25. Though at the time Christ spoke with Martha, He had not yet fulfilled His function as the covenant sacrifice, He was completely cognizant of His role and mission as orchestrated, as orchestrated and directed by the Father. And could rightly say, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, there are two negating doctrines or principles 
to Christ's statements. Two negating doctrines or principles, or two, two ones that, off, that, that I consider, and there may be other ones that can be thrown out, but ideas that do not harmonize with Christ's statement and that cancel out Jesus' connection to resurrection and eternal life. One false idea claims that we have an immortal soul and that at death, such an invincible, such an invincible soul is immediately transferred to heaven or to burning torment. Now, what is the, pro- what is the problem with the idea of believing in a mortal soul and how it connects to the, the clear principle of resurrection as is, as is found in the Scriptures. What is the problem with that? Well, it negates the hope of resurrection. Why do you need a resurrection if you go to heaven when you die? Or if you have, as they would say that goes along with this, already are born with an immortal soul. And definitely the hope of life eternal if all men are born with an immortal soul itself. Now, a random quote, and I've, I've used this a few times. I, I'm struck by it. I don't know if, if, if it'll carry the same weight with those of you who read this, but I, just, I think it's a, a kind of a clever way to state the case. Uh, but it's a quote that appears in the 1899 Advocate by Brother C.C. Rennenberg, uh, in which he makes an interesting observation regarding this matter of of, of resurrection and hope through Christ if you believe in an immortal soul. He says, The popular view of the immortality of the soul and its attainment of heaven makes Adam, not Christ, the bringer of eternal life in direct opposition to Paul's teaching in Romans 5.12. Had Adam not sinned, he would not have died. And if he had not died... His immaterial soul could not have winged its way to realms beyond the bounds of time and space. Thus, we have nothing going nowhere. So if you take the idea that it is that we are born with an immortal soul, then Christ is not the bringer of life. It is actually Adam who is the bringer of life. And the fact that he brought death upon mankind, and we know that it is, according to the immortal soulless, it is death that frees us from this this, these bonds that we are under uh, regarding to the flesh. Another idea contends, as found in the BASF, or Amended Christadelphian Model of Belief, that it is light or knowledge only of God's revealed plan, regardless of covenant, that is the basis for the resurrection to come and accountability to Christ's judgment seat. Such a view does recognize Christ's connection to the hope of eternal life, just to be fair, but does not recognize the role that the covenant through the shedding of blood, Christ's blood, has in relation to a guarantee from the grave. Now, we have to be extremely careful that we do not separate Christ and relationship to Him from the hope, our hope, of resurrection. If Christ is not the key to resurrection, whether it be resurrection to condemnation or resurrection to life eternal, then we negate the very things that Christ taught of Himself and what the apostles emphasized without exception. What the apostles emphasized without exception. Now, in considering our basis of resurrection... With this in mind, it is important for us to consider the impact that Christ's statement has on our hope, the hope of resurrection and the hope of eternal life. How do we become part of the many spoken of by the prophet Daniel who will be raised from the dead? Are we guessing or is is there clear instructions or information given regarding these principles? Galatians 3.27 The statement is extremely unambiguous. 
For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And skipping down, and if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. To be baptized into Christ is the only way in the present dispensation that one can be considered as heir of the covenants of promise. Now, knowing that resurrection is bound up in these promises, if Christ's basis of resurrection, if the basis for the resurrection of Abraham and David is the everlasting covenant, does it not seem logical to conclude that such is the basis for all others connected to the covenant as well? Since the hope of resurrection is only revealed in the Scriptures as being bound up in the everlasting covenant, and again, we're not talking about those, those uh, random miracles that took place as signs of this hope. Let me read that again, just so I can put that in context, as I broke away from my sentence there. Since the hope of resurrection is only revealed in the Scriptures as being bound up in the everlasting covenant, and knowing that Christ Himself was raised through the operation of the blood of the everlasting covenant, then it would stand to reason that His servants, those that through knowledge and faith in God's promises have been baptized into His name, will also be raised from the dead by the same means. Now this is not a matter of conjecture, but is a matter of clear scriptural revelation. And the only means that is revealed to us in the scriptures for us to attain resurrection. Let's turn to Psalms chapter 50. Starting in the third verse. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Verse 4. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, resurrection is not specifically mentioned here, but we're not finished yet. The saints of this current dispensation, the saints of this current dispensation are those who have been joined to the Abrahamic covenant through baptism into Christ. Representative of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Brother John Thomas in Eureka made this interesting observation in reference to this passage and the judgment seat. I'll just skip over some. He says this, All who have made a covenant with Yahweh by sacrifice and in any way related to the covenants of promise will be gathered and stand before this or stand before the judgment seat. A few lines earlier, and I don't have it up here, he also stated, the king of the Jews will first manifest his presence, not to the world at large, which will not know of his being there, or if told the fact, would not believe it, but to those whom the blood of the covenant brings before his tribunal. Page 234 of Volume 5 of the Logos edition. We're still not finished. Isaiah 55.3 Isaiah 55.3 Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. 
Now, the sure mercies of David and the Davidic covenants are the same thing and are a part of the everlasting covenant. Here we see that such a covenant is not confined to just David and Christ, but as is mentioned in the first verse of this chapter, Isaiah 55, everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters. In other words, the waters, or we can make the connection, the waters of baptism. The you, as mentioned in verse 3, is by extension to those who connect themselves with the covenant through Christ. We're still not finished. Zechariah chapter 9. We haven't even got to the New Testament yet. Zechariah chapter 9. Starting in verse 9. Here in this ninth verse, we are given information regarding Christ with verse 10 stating, verse 10 stating, His dominion shall be from sea to sea. In verse 11, it is stated, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. The pit is representative of death. And the only method mentioned here of release from death is through the blood of the covenant. In other words, the redemptive work of Christ. Now moving on to the New Testament. Going to Acts chapter 4 verse 2. After Christ's ascension to heaven, it rested on the apostles to spread the gospel message. It is recorded in Acts chapter 4 2 that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the word through here is from the Greek preposition. E-N or N. And you don't have to be a Greek scholar to, 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 to put these things together. The word through here is from the Greek preposition N. And is equivalent to our word N, as in I-N. According to Bollinger, it denotes being or remaining within. Denotes being or remaining within. It has regard to place and space or sphere of action. So this, this passage that we, we just read could read, and maybe more appropriately reads, and is translated such in other versions, that these apostles preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Here... The apostles connect the hope of resurrection to those who are in Christ as a matter of constitution or federal relationship. How do we become in Christ? Through baptism. In the 15th chapter of Corinthians, if we could turn there. What we understand is the resurrection chapter. The 15th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Here, encountering those who claim there was no resurrection, Paul shows the connection between Christ's resurrection and our hope of resurrection. Verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. Verse 16, If the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Then in verse 17 and 18, he clearly emphasizes the inseparable relationship between Christ's resurrection and those that are in Him. As he says, 
And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet still in your sins. Then they which are fallen asleep in, I-N, this is from the Greek word E-N, then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Christ's statement, I am the resurrection, is clearly demonstrated here in Paul's argument. It is important to note here that only those who have fallen asleep in Christ are mentioned in relation to the act of resurrection. No mention is made here of those outside of Christ, whether they be enlightened by the word of truth or otherwise. No mention is made of those outside of Christ, whether they be enlightened or otherwise. Paul continues his exposition in verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at His coming. Pretty emphatic language. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It states, We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. The preposition by, as it relates to by Jesus, used here is from a different Greek word, than what we have discussed already, the E-N or N. The word is dia. And according to Bollinger, denotes any cause by means of which an action passes into accomplishment. Denotes any cause by means of which an action passes into accomplishment. Now what is the action being discussed in this passage? What is it? What is, what is the action being discussed? Brethren? Raise up a resurrection. Resurrection is what the action is. Who is the means through which the action is accomplished? Christ. Christ is the means by which the action is accomplished. Dia, or by, or through, or in Christ. By. Now, it is important to mention here that Paul makes note that knowing or understanding this is a matter of faith. Or the usage of faith here is a noun or the faith. Now, our understanding of this is a matter of fundamental principle. It's a part of our hope. It's a cornerstone of our hope. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if we could turn that up, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, First Thessalonians 4, we have a passage of great comfort for the believers. Starting in the 13th verse here. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now here there are two groups specified. Those who are asleep, which represents the believers, and those which have no hope, or those outside of the Christ community. It continues in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Here we again have a connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the believers. Or as is stated here, those which sleep in dia, Jesus. Those which sleep in or dia, Jesus. Continuing on to verse 16, we read, 
For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God and the dead in, now using the Greek preposition in or en, Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, more passages could be considered, but from these verses we have sufficient evidence to comprehend the direct correlation between Christ's statement, I am the resurrection, and our hope so that we conclude that the surety or guarantee of resurrection as revealed in the Scriptures is only in relation to those who are in covenant relationship, those who are spoken of as being in Christ. Now, as a matter of comfort, we consider the doctrinal implication of Christ's I Am statement. We need to be careful, extremely careful, not to lose sight of the exhortational value of such words. Jesus' words to Martha were well placed during a time of great grief. Martha understood that there would be a resurrection at the last day, but Jesus helped her to understand that He Himself was the promised means by which that hope would be realized. This was a teaching moment. Not only are Christ's words a matter of crystal clear explanation, but they are words that reveal the beauty and mercy of God's workings, as well as being words of great comfort to our hope. Psalms 116, verse 15. Psalms 116, verse 15. Here we read, Precious in the sight of the Lord, or Yahweh, is the death of His saints. Now, the word precious is from the Hebrew word yakar, and indicates something which is valuable. Other things that are referred to in the Scriptures as being precious include the word of the Lord, Redemption is referred to as precious. The blood of the poor and needy is referred to as precious. Knowledge and wisdom are referred to as being precious, as well as God's thoughts are considered as precious. Now what greater comfort can we have knowing that the death of God's servants throughout the ages, those who have made a covenant with Him through sacrifice, are viewed by God as being precious? Now, it is not that death is viewed as precious by God, for it is the great enemy of mankind and is looked upon by God as being obnoxious. But unlike the masses of humanity that perish eternally in the dust, there is something marked or unique about the death of the saint, something that is not forgotten by God and is held in the highest value by Him. That something is the value placed upon it through the redemptive work of of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. And we are closing our thoughts for this evening. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. First Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as the Lamb without blemish. The precious blood of Christ as the Lamb without blemish. We also read in Revelation fourteen, or excuse me, Revelation fourteen thirteen. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. It is a fact that should not be lost on us that the very first order of business that Christ will take care of when He returns is to do what? He will raise the dead. He will raise His fellow brethren from the dead. That's the first thing He will do. So how does that stack? How does that compare to His list of priorities? Abraham, David, Daniel, his dear apostles, and all those who have made a covenant through sacrifice. As we've already read in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first. To rescue His brethren from the pit wherein there is no water will be the top priority of Christ. Through the sobering matters of the judgment seat, or excuse me, though the sobering matters of the judgment seat will, will face those who arise from the dead through, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, as well as those found alive who are under the covenant. For those who are found worthy the blessings of immortality, I am the life, will be granted and eternal blessings enjoyed of those promises given to Abraham and David and the covenant sacrifice himself. Jesus the Anointed. Now this subject is a subject of exposition, one of exhortation, and of truth, and most certainly, if rightly understood, is resurrection and life to us. It is a fundamental aspect of the faith, as once delivered unto the saints. And again, to close once more, Jesus stated... I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Thank you for your attention this evening.